Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Second Peter. Boy, we're still on First Peter. Second Peter chapter two, verse one, uh, this morning, as we are now launching into the second chapter of Second Peter. So I'd like to read for you verse one. And we'll examine uh, some of the theological issues that are a part of this uh, controversial verse in many ways. So 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words for our blessing and our edification. He writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So now we started into chapter 2, and this is really a new section in Peter's letter. Chapter 1 basically dealt with the importance of pursuing godliness because of God's grace within us. Uh, He ended the chapter talking about true prophets who wrote Scripture, being moved by the Spirit of God. They spoke from God. And now in chapter 2, he begins to look past, there will be and are false teachers among you now. So that Peter is now focusing upon a lot of the uh, destructive heresies that are being brought into the church. And he's quite clear in verse 1 that they bring swift destruction upon themselves. So, all of chapter 2 is going to be basically an evaluation of the false teachers that are currently within the church when Peter is writing this, and those who will continue to infiltrate the church over the centuries. And he's going to expose not only their heresies, but their immoral lifestyle that goes with it. So this is going to be basically all of chapter 2. And so he's going to kind of walk us through and give us a lot of warnings Uh, not only to the false teachers, but to the church not to fall prey to those destructive heresies or to believe them or allow them into your mind or into your worship. Before we get into all of that, though, there is a controversy in verse 1 that I'm really drawn to that I think we need to explore this morning. When you look at verse 1, he describes these false teachers who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them. Now this verse, many believe, teaches the idea of a universal atonement. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for everybody. Because obviously, here you have false teachers who are denying the Master who bought them. So Christ's death on the cross bought these false teachers. So they conclude from this, again, that basically Jesus 
died for all men. So some of the theological questions that are arising from this verse are number one, does this teach that Jesus did die for everybody, for all men throughout all time? Or did he die just for the elect of God, which is what I think the Bible teaches? But another issue is number two, does this teach that these believers or that believers can lose their salvation? Because as we work through the chapter, there's going to be some of these issues here. They look like they're in the church. They make a profession of faith. Christ bought them. They sound like they're in the church, but then then they end up being judged and condemned. So did they lose their salvation? Is that possible? So these are some of the theological issues that come up. And this morning, I want to primarily focus on the first one. That when Peter writes that these false teachers deny the Master who bought them, is that an argument for universal atonement? That Jesus died for everybody? So again, here's kind of the argument that they make. And the reason why I think it's worthy of our study this morning And you may think, why is he delving into such a a narrow little theological issue? Is because it's dealing with the cross of Christ. And it's dealing with what did Jesus accomplish on the cross when He died. And every believer needs to be interested in that issue. And every believer needs to grapple with what did He accomplish when He died. And this is an issue that believers don't agree. But we're going to work through it today. When when the Lord brought me into the doctrines of grace or reformed theology, this issue was the last domino for me to fall. So I appreciate the difficulty of it, the controversy of it, that believers don't agree on it. But this is a vital issue. Paul said, I will boast in nothing but saving the cross of Christ. And we need to fully examine and meditate on what exactly did Jesus accomplish when He died. So it is well worth our time to work through it. So as they walk through this verse, this is the logic for those who believe in unlimited atonement that Jesus died for everybody. They point out in the verse that false teachers denied the Master who bought them. So it says that the Master bought them. Secondly, that these false teachers are going to be judged. The Master bought them, but they're going to end up going to hell. They bring swift destruction upon themselves. Verse 1, their destruction is not asleep. Verse 3, they argue that the Master who bought them is none other than Jesus Christ on the cross who bought them. Number three, that's number three. And number four, if Christ bought the false teachers, then He died for both the saved and the lost, i.e. He died for all men. And they get that from the verse. And you look at it and you think, hmm, makes sense. Maybe Jesus did die for everybody. Those who are in heaven, those who will go to heaven, and also for those who go to hell. Jesus died for everybody. So, 
Now, I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. It's the most popular view of the atonement. So if you're here this morning and you say, absolutely, that's exactly what happened. Well, I fully understand. Uh, I used to hold that view for certainly a period of time. But I'm going to appeal to you that that is not the best way to understand this verse. So you can give me a grade at the end of the sermon. But uh, let me start out with a couple of initial observations on this whole issue. The controversy is really over the intent of the atonement. In other words, what was the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross? The intent of the atonement will determine the extent of the atonement. So the universal atonement, Jesus died for everybody, believes that Jesus died to make salvation possible for all men. That's the idea that they understand. Jesus died to make salvation possible for all men. That's what they believe. That's what they teach. The limited atonement view believes that Jesus died to actually save the elect. So what's the purpose of the atonement? Did Jesus die just to make all men savable? Did He just die to make salvation possible for all men? Or when He died, did He actually save sinners? That's a huge difference in understanding the purpose or what He accomplished on the cross. So the first observation I want to make is that it's the controversy is over the intent, the purpose for which Jesus went to the cross. Secondly, for those who struggle with a limited atonement, both views end up saving the exact same people. Whether you hold to limited atonement or unlimited atonement, the exact same number of people, the exact same people end up getting saved. So the controversy shouldn't be over that kind of a bias. Well, unlimited atonement is is better than limited because it saves more people. No, it doesn't save more people. It saves the exact same number of people. And the third initial observation I want to make is that both views actually limit the atonement. The limited atonement view that I believe is taught in Scripture limits the number for whom Christ died. He didn't die for everybody. He died for the elect chosen before the foundation of the world. So it limits the number for whom Christ died. The unlimited view limits the power. It says Christ died for everybody, but it doesn't have the power to save anybody. It just makes them savable. It makes their salvation possible, but it doesn't actually save anybody. So it limits the power, the effectualness of the atonement. So both views limit the atonement. It just depends on which direction you go with it. Well, let's look at some of the problems with the universal atonement. So again, if you believe that Jesus died for everybody, which I did for a number of years, you basically say that He died to make salvation possible for all men. You have to. You don't say that He actually died to save all men because all men are not saved. 
So he died just to make salvation possible for all men. That's the way they, they express it. But to hold that position denies the very language of redemption in the New Testament and, and in the Old Testament as well. Here in verse 1 when it says they deny the Master who bought them, that always means that it's a very real purpose, a very real purchase that was accomplished. It's not hypothetical. It's not just possible. It's not just a, a, a something that uh, may or may not happen. That when you say the word bought in the New Testament, people were actually bought. It is a transaction that is accomplished. It's not just something that's possible if someone buys someone else, they are bought. They are purchased. They now belong to them. So there's none of this idea that's just a possible purchase or buying. No, it is a definite buying of someone. And this is the, the language of redemption throughout the Bible. Let me just throw out a few more verses that support this idea. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, you were slain, referring to Christ and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Not just make their purchase possible, He actually purchased them when He died on the cross. That's a huge difference. Hebrews 9.12 said that He entered the holy place through His blood, having obtained eternal redemption. He didn't just make eternal redemption possible. He actually obtained it. Okay, very definite, very specific, accomplished redemption when He died on the cross. So a few other verses. 1 Timothy 1.15 Paul says, Christ Jesus came to the world to make salvation possible for sinners. Obviously, it doesn't say that. He came into the world to save sinners. So what was the intent of the cross? What was the purpose? To make Sinners savable to make their salvation possible? No. He came to save. Very clear. Very definite. He accomplished it. He saved sinners when He died on the cross. In John 6.39, Jesus says, this is the will of Him who sent Me that of all that He has given Me, I lose nothing. Well, under a universal atonement, Jesus died for everybody. He loses a lot of people. Right? Because the way, the broad way to destruction, there are many on that. But Jesus says, I lose none of them that the Father gave me. So again, very definite, very secure, very much accomplished. In Colossians 1.22, Paul says, of Christ, He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death. He didn't make reconciliation possible he reconciled sinners when He died. See, it's an accomplished event. It's not hypothetical. It's not just a possible thing. He actually accomplished it. In John 1.29, John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus died on the cross, He took away the sin. He took it away. He just didn't make it possible that it's taken away. He takes it away. In 1 John 
He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means that Christ removed the wrath of God. He didn't just do it hypothetically or provisionally. He was actually the propitiation for our sins. He removed the wrath of God for whom He died. He didn't just make it possible. That vague language is what the universal atonement uh, advocates must embrace. He died for everybody. He made salvation possible for everybody. But that's not the language of Scripture. I forgot to move the slide. In 1 Peter 2.24 that we read earlier, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. So He actually bore our sins. Again, the language is so definite and concrete. It's not vague. He just made salvation possible for all men. No, He actually saved sinners when He died. So when you look at all these verses and kind of sum up the main ideas that are found here, you find that Christ is described as our substitute. He died for our sins. He died in our place. He was our substitute on the cross. Secondly, He was our sacrifice. He died taking the wages of sin, which is death, for us. He actually died for us. He was our sacrifice. And thirdly, He accomplished a what we call a penal satisfaction. Penal goes with the word penalty. Satisfaction. The Father is satisfied because Jesus bore all of the penalty for our sins when He died. Penal satisfaction. The Father is satisfied. I love Isaiah 53, verse 11. As a result of the anguish of His soul, the anguish of Christ on the cross, suffering, bearing our sin, He, the Father, will see it and be satisfied. The Father is satisfied. His justice has been met. His law has been satisfied. The punishment that we deserve has all been absorbed and taken by our Mediator, by Jesus Christ. The Father is satisfied. So if that's the case, if you believe that Jesus died for all men, and Jesus accomplished a penal satisfaction as our sacrifice, dying as our substitute, and you believe that Jesus accomplished that for all men everywhere, what do you end up with? Well, you end up with universalism. If Jesus died and bore all of the sins of all men throughout all of history, He died as their substitute. He died as their sacrifice. He accomplished a penal satisfaction and totally satisfied the wrath and justice and the law of God for sinners. Then there is nothing to keep them out of heaven. All their sins have been paid for. If He died for everybody, then all of their sins have been paid for. And you end up with universalism. Everybody goes to heaven. 
which as much as we might be attracted to that view, simply is not biblical. Now, John Owen, John Owen uh, wrote a phenomenal book on the atonement of Christ called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Kind of a catchy title. Think about it as pretty, pretty uh, a spectacular title really for a book. But in this work, he came up with a dilemma. And he said, if the Father imposed His wrath and the Son underwent the punishment for... And then he gives three options. He did it. He, he bore the wrath. He bore the punishment for either all of the sins of all men. Number one. Number two, all of the sins of some men. Or number three, some of the sins of all men. Now, he left out some of the sins of some men because nobody would even uh, consider that as an option really. So then John Owen said, well, let's start with number three. If number three is true, if Jesus bore the wrath and suffered the penalty for some of the sins of all men, then who would go to heaven? He only suffered for some of the sins of all men. Who would go to heaven? Nobody. Because we all have sins that Jesus didn't die for, that we, we will have to suffer for. Okay, So that view is not any good, nor is it biblical. So he said, let's go to number two. That Jesus bore the wrath and endured the punishment for all of the sins of some men. So in that view, some men go to heaven and the others do not. And that's exactly what happens. That fits with reality. Some go to heaven and some do not. But then let's look at number one option. If Jesus endured the wrath and suffered the punishment for all of the sins of all men, then you ultimately end up with everybody going to heaven, which is not biblical. He he reasons it this way. Why then, if number one is true, are not all men free from punishment for all their sins? You answer, well, because of their unbelief. And John Owen says, I ask, is this unbelief a sin or is it not? If it's a sin, then did Jesus suffer the punishment due the sin of unbelief or did He not? If He did suffer for the sin of unbelief too, He died for all the sins of all men, so He must have died for the sin of unbelief too, then that wouldn't keep them out of heaven either because Jesus died for that sin too. He died for all the sins of all men. So that wouldn't keep them out of heaven. But if He didn't die for the sin of unbelief, then He didn't die for all their sins and they have that sin still to pay for themselves. So it's a dilemma. The only one that seems to fit reality and is harmonized with Scripture is that it's number two. That Christ died for all the sins of some men. He actually suffered 
the punishment and the wrath of God for their sins. If you did that for everybody, then you end up with universalism. And that again, the Bible does not teach. Another problem is that if Christ died for all men and some are lost, then that's a problem. If you say, okay, Jesus died for everybody and He bore the wrath of God, He bore the punishment of God for everybody's sins, and yet some still have to go to hell and get punished for it themselves, that makes God unjust. That's what we call in legal terms double jeopardy. You say, well, how does that work? Well, if God already punished Jesus for their sins, He would be unjust to punish the sinner a second time for those sins, those same sins. Legally, that you can't do that in a courtroom in, in our country. You only suffer and pay the penalty once for a sin or a crime. But if God already punished Jesus, then the debt's been paid. His wrath has been fully absorbed. And yet, He's going to send those same people to hell and make them suffer a second time. That's unjust. So you end up with the idea of double jeopardy that if God punished their sins on the cross, how can God punish their sins a second time in hell and remain just? So that's a problem. If you want to believe that God sent Jesus to die for everybody, die for all the sins of all men, you got to run and say, well, He just made it possible for everybody to be saved, but that denies the language of Scripture. And if you hold to the reality of the concept that Jesus actually bore sin and suffered for sin, and if He did that for everybody, then everybody goes to heaven. That's universalism, but that's unbiblical too. So the, the theology of that position just does not hold water in my opinion. Look at how Scripture oftentimes presents the death of Jesus in a very limited scope. Notice some of these verses. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Christ died for the church. In John 10.11, Jesus says, I'm the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. And later on, He talks about people who are not His sheep. In John 10, verse 26, but He says, I'm the Good Shepherd and I lay My life down for My sheep. You don't follow Me. You don't believe in Me because you're not My sheep. He says later on. But He dies for His sheep. A limited number of people. Not the goats, but for His sheep. Matthew 1.21 The angel to Joseph said, You shall call His name Jesus, for He will save who? His people from their sin. The restriction of the atonement. Not for everybody. He will save His people from their sin. He came to die to actually bear their sin to bear the punishment of their sin, to bear the wrath of God for their sin, He will save them when He dies on the cross. And that's what the angel said. That's why you call His name Jesus. The Lord is salvation is what that name means. 
He will save His people from their sins. Very limited in scope. Hebrews 2.17 He came to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And the people in the context again are the restricted, the, the chosen ones, the spiritual seed of Abraham. He will make propitiation for them. In Mark 10.45 He gives His life a ransom for many. In Isaiah 53.8 He dies for the transgression of My people to whom the stroke was due. In Acts 20.28, Christ, the elders at Ephesus are to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. Again, the church. He died for the church. So again, you have a lot of verses in the Bible that restrict the atonement of Jesus Christ specifically to the elect of God or the church of God, the sheep of God, the people of God. He didn't die for everybody. He died for His bride. He died for His church. You say, well, what about all the verses where it says that He's not willing for any to perish? Or that He desires that all be saved? And you have these universal expressions. Well, those of us who try to harmonize all these verses understand those verses to mean that He just died for all kinds of men. He died for the world, both Jews and Gentiles. He died for all kinds of men. Men and women and slaves and free men and Greeks and Jews. All kinds of men. He died for all men is the meaning. Not every single individual that ever lived. And when you look at the Old Testament, what are the pictures of Jesus Christ dying for us in the Old Testament? You have two amazing pictures that prefigure the death of Jesus on the cross. The first one is the Passover lamb when God is delivering Israel out from under the bondage of Egypt. And who is the Passover lamb slain for? Only for the Israelites. Not for the Egyptians, right? So, Jesus is called our Passover in 1 Corinthians 5-7. He's our Passover lamb. And the very picture of the Old Testament is that the Passover lamb doesn't die for everybody. It's restricted to God's chosen covenant people. And that is a picture of Jesus as our Passover lamb who dies for His church on the cross. His chosen covenant people. The parallel is beautiful. And then how about on the Day of Atonement? The high priest offers the blood of a bull for his own sins. Then he takes the two goats. One goat he slaughters. He takes the blood. He goes inside the veil into the Holy of Holies one day out of the year. Sprinkles the blood in front of the mercy seat and on the mercy seat. And who is that blood spilt for? And then he comes out and then he takes the second goat called the scapegoat. He puts his hands on the head of that goat And he confesses over the sins. Whose sins? Israel's. Only Israel's. The blood was for the forgiveness of the sins of Israel. Laying the hands on the head of that goat, speaking over the sins of that goat were the sins of Israel. Not the Hittites. Not the Philistines. Specifically for God's chosen covenant people. And then that goat is led out by one of the Levites out of the camp 
over the hill and disappears as a picture of the lamb taking, or the goat in this case, taking our sins completely away. But whose sins? The sins of the whole world? The sins of Israel. God's chosen covenant people. So two of the greatest pictures of the atonement of Christ tell us He died for a limited number of people. His elect. And He purchased them. He actually died for them in their place. He took our sins and actually suffered the wrath of God for us. He calls His own sheep by name. He dies for His own sheep by name. He died for you as a believer in Jesus Christ. Not just something vague. Well, He died to make salvation possible for all men. He died for us. Specifically. Definitely. He bore your sins on the cross. And He suffered the wrath of God and paid the full penalty for your sins as a believer. Not something broad and general and vague, hypothetical possibility for all men to be saved. No, He actually died to save us. To save His people from their sins. Well, with that in view and wrapping this up, let's go back to 2 Peter 2.1. So, how do we interpret this then? Because it says that these false teachers were denying the Master who bought them. And if He bought them, then He bought them. He paid the price for them. Their sins have been paid for. They're going to end up in heaven. But they don't end up in heaven because they're bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So that the idea of that just can't be, can't be right. Because their sins are not forgiven. They're going to be judged. So how do we interpret this phrase that they deny the Master who bought them. Well, I'm going to exclude all the non-atonement views. There's a number of them out there. I'm going to favor the Christian charity view. The way I would, I think, and I'm not 100% sure of the best way to interpret verse 1, but I'm leaning towards this view that when it says, when Peter says that they deny the Master who bought them, Peter is just speaking with Christian charity. These false teachers claim that Jesus bought them. He didn't really, I don't think. But Peter's just recording their words, their own testimony. It's a Christian charity view. Jesus bought us. Jesus saved us. That's what they're going to say. These false teachers will say that. Now in reality, they're not true believers. They're going to be judged. But they claim that they're good Christians. They claim that Jesus bought them, that He died for them. That's their claim, even though their lifestyle denies the reality of it, the truthfulness of it. But Peter's just saying, in effect, this is what they say. Denying the Master who they say bought them. So I think that would probably be the best way to interpret this. If Jesus really did buy them, then their sins have been paid for. They're going to go to heaven. But that's not what's happening in the context. They're bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Let me give you another example of this Christian charity view. In Matthew 9, 
Jesus says it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. For I did not call, come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus is saying, I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call the sinners. Now he's talking about the Pharisees here. Now who did, what did the Pharisees say about themselves? Well, we're righteous. We're the righteous ones. And Jesus is just speaking of them. I didn't come to, to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, the reality is there's none righteous. No, not one. That's what the Bible teaches. But Jesus uses this Christian charity view to describe them. When in reality, there are no righteous, but some people think they're righteous. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the, the righteous, those who think they're sinless. There really aren't any. But I came to call sinners. And there's a similar sense in which he's using language as Peter did in 2 Peter 2.1. How about this verse? In Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practice lawlessness. Now here you've got these people who say, Lord, Jesus is our Lord. We're followers of, of Jesus. He's our Lord. And they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not? And then all these miraculous signs that Jesus will say, no, no, you call me Lord. That's what you claim. It's not true. I never knew you. Matter of fact, you're workers of lawlessness. I'm not your Lord. You claim that I am. You call out. Lord, Lord, you're saying that I'm, but I'm not your Lord. And in a very real sense, in Second Peter chapter two, Peter is just basically Christian charity view is let, expressing themselves based on their own claim, as faulty as it is. Jesus bought us; he really didn't, but he's just quoting it because that's what they're claiming. John eight fifty four is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So they're going around saying, God is our God. Well, you know what they had just done in the pretext, in the, in the previous context? They claimed that Jesus was demon possessed because he was casting out demons by the power of the Spirit. But they're going around saying, God is our God. So Jesus just quotes them in their own words, kind of the Christian charity view. God is not their God. But they claim, God is our God. But they just accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed so they don't know God. That's another example of where that Christian charity view can come into play. So in my two cents, as I read 2 Peter 2.1, these false teachers who deny the Master who bought them, the Christian charity view seems to make the most sense. You can't water down the word bought and say He just made their purchase possible. No, it says Christ bought them. If He bought them on the cross, if He paid the penalty for their sins, then they should not go to hell. They shouldn't experience judgment. But they do. So obviously, Jesus did not buy them. And if you say that, well, He just made their salvation possible, that's not the way redemptive language is used in the Bible. It's not that hypothetical, vague concept. It's very definite. It's very concrete. He actually purchased them. 
So to harmonize all of that, I think uh, Peter is just quoting them saying that uh, Jesus bought them and they end up denying Him. But in reality, Jesus did not buy them at all. Let me close with just a few quotes. It's from Lorraine Bettner, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. It says, For the Calvinist, someone who believes in limited atonement, the atonement is like a narrow bridge which goes all the way across the stream. But for the Arminian who believes that Jesus died for everybody, it's like a great wide bridge that goes only halfway across the stream. And then they either be, need to be a very good broad jumper to get to the other side or they got to do something to get to the other side. It's something they do. So if you say that Jesus died for everybody, your, your, your atonement is a bridge that's broad, but only goes halfway across the river. It stops. Doesn't get you all the way to the other side. It's something you gotta do. But if you believe in a limited atonement, Jesus came and died, and it's a narrower bridge. The scope is only of the church, only of the elect, but it goes all the way over the water, gets us safely to the other side. And I think that's a good analogy. Roger Nicole said, the choice here is not between limited and unlimited atonement, but between an effective atonement, limited in breadth to the redeemed, and a universal atonement, limited in depth to the point of ineffectuality. In other words, Jesus died for everybody, but it didn't save anybody. That's the nature of the atonement that you have to end up with. So Charles Spurgeon, can't leave without a Spurgeon quote, said, I would rather believe in a limited atonement that is efficacious for all men for whom it was intended than a universal atonement that is not efficacious for anybody except the will of men be added to it. And I think he summarized it well. One final quote from Spurgeon. It's a little long. Hopefully you can follow it. Spurgeon says, we are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ died for all men. Now our reply to this is that on the other hand, our opponents limit it. The Arminians say Christ died for all men, but ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? They say, no, certainly not. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? They answer no. They're obliged to admit this if they're consistent. They say, no, Christ has died that any man may be saved if, and then follow certain conditions of salvation. Spurgeon adds on to that. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why you? You say that Christ did not die so as to infallibly secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon. When you say that we limit Christ's death, we say, no, my dear sir, it is you that limit Christ's death. 
We say Christ so died that He infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You are welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. So basically what Spurgeon is saying is hold to limited atonement. By the way, all you women here this morning, all you wives, you want your husband to hold to limited atonement. Because in Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Wives, you want your husband loving other women as much as they love you? No wife does. You want your husband to have a special, limited love for you. That's a limited love. And that's the pattern for us as men. We are to imitate Christ in His limited atonement. His limited love for His bride. We don't love all women like we love our wives. They're special. We're in covenant with them. We've chosen them to be our wives. There's a special love because that's the same kind of love of Jesus on the cross. So wives, you want your husbands to hold to limited atonement, not unlimited atonement or universal atonement. You don't want Him to share His love equally with all women. You want Him to have a special, powerful, deeper, richer love for you. And that's the love of Christ for His church, for His bride. Well, I hope, I know this is kind of heavy and deep and hopefully you followed with some of the, the intricacies of the controversy and uh, maybe have a better understanding of what's involved in the debate. But uh, a lot of brethren hold to an unlimited atonement. And uh, I understand, certainly have been there. But I think it's more glorifying when we understand the special nature of the atonement that He actually died for sins and suffered for sinners and took away the full wrath and penalty that they deserve. Not just something hypothetical or possible. He actually died. Which means that when we come to the Lord's Supper, which is only for believers, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, please let it pass you by. But as a believer as you hold the bread and take the cup, which reminds us of Christ's blood and body on the cross, you ought to go to the Lord and say, thank You, Lord, that You died for me. You didn't just die kind of a a generic, vague, generalized atonement just to make people savable. You died for me. You called me by name. You died for me by name. You died for me when you hung upon that cross. And it brings a celebration of the Lord's Supper so much more personal than just, well, Jesus died on the cross for sinners. No, He died for me. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, that's what we need to celebrate.